0: chapter 12 part 2 of how i found livingston this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by tim kyle how i found livingston travels adventures and discoveries in central africa including four months residence with dr livingston by sir henry m stanley chapter 12 part 2 intercourse with livingston at ujiji Livingston's own story of his journeys, his troubles, and disappointments. On discovering that the insignificant stream called the Chambezi, which rises between ten degrees south and twelve degrees south, flowed westerly, and then northerly through several lakes, now under the name of the Chambezi, then as the Luapua, and then as the Lualaba, and that it still continued its flow toward the north for over seven degrees, Livingston became firmly of the opinion that the river whose current he followed was the Egyptian Nile. Failing at latitude four degrees south to pursue his explorations farther without additional supplies, he determined to return to Ujiji to obtain them. And now, having obtained them, he intends to return to the point where he left off his work. He means to follow that great river until it is firmly established what name shall eventually be given the noble waterway whose course he followed through so many sick toilings and difficulties. To all entreaties to come home, to all the glowing temptations which home and innumerable friends offer, he returns the determined answer no not until my work is ended i have often heard our servants discuss our respective merits your master say my servants to livingstons is a good man a very good man he does not beat you for he has a kind heart but ours oh he is sharp hot as fire from being hated and thwarted in every possible way by the arabs and half-castes upon first arrival in ujiji he has through his uniform kindness and mild pleasant temper won all hearts I observed that universal respect was paid to him even the mohammedans never passed his house without calling to pay their compliments and to say the blessing of god rest upon you each sunday morning he gathers his little flock around him and reads prayers in a chapter from the bible in a natural unaffected and sincere tone and afterwards delivers a short address in the kiswahili language about the subject read to them which is listened to with interest and attention there is another point in Livingstone's character about which readers of his books and students of his travels would like to know and that is his ability to withstand the dreadful climate of central africa and the consistent energy with which he follows up his explorations his consistent energy is native to him and to his race he is a very fine example of the perseverance doggedness and tenacity which characterize the anglo-saxon spirit but his ability to withstand the climate is due not only to the happy constitution with he was born but to the strictly temperate life he has ever led a drunkard and man of vicious habits could never have withstood the climate of central africa the second day after my arrival in ujiji i asked the doctor if he did not feel a desire sometimes to visit his country and take a little rest after his six years explorations and the answer he gave me reveals the man said he I should like very much to go home and see my children once again, but I cannot bring my heart to abandon the task I have undertaken when it is so nearly completed. It only requires six or seven months more to trace the true source that I have discovered with Petherick's branch of the White Nile, or with Albert Niazza of Sir Samuel Baker, which is the lake called by the natives Chewambi. Why should I go home before my task is ended, to have to come back again to do what I very well do now? And why, I asked? Did you come so far back without finishing the task which you say you have got to do, simply because I was forced? My men would not budge a step forward. They mutinied, and formed a secret resolution. If I still insisted upon going on to raise a disturbance in the country, and after they had effected it to abandon me, in which case I should have been killed— It was dangerous to go any further. I had explored six hundred miles of the watershed, had traced all the principal streams which discharged their waters into the central line of drainage, but when about starting to explore the last hundred miles. The hearts of my people failed them, and they set about frustrating me in every possible way. Now having returned seven hundred miles to get a new supply of stores, and another escort, I find myself destitute of even the means to live but for a few weeks, and sick in mind and body. Here I may pause to ask any brave man how he would have comported himself in such a crisis. Many would have been in exceeding hurry to get home to tell the news of the continued explorations and discoveries, and to relieve the anxiety of the sorrowing family and friends awaiting their return. Enough surely had been accomplished toward the solution of the problem that had exercised the minds of his scientific associates of the Royal Geographical Society. It was no negative exploration; it was hard, earnest labor of years, self-abnegation, enduring patience, and exalted fortitude, such as ordinary men fail to exhibit. Suppose Livingstone had hurried to the coast after he had discovered Lake Ban to tell the news to the geographical world, then had returned to discover Morero and run away again, then went back once more only to discover Camelondo and to race back again. This would not be in accordance with Livingstone's character. He must not only discover the Chambezi, Lake Banguolo, Luapula River, Lake Morero, Lulaba River, and Lake Komolondo, but he must still tirelessly urge his steps forward to put the co- final completion to the grand Lacustrine River system. Had he followed the example of ordinary explorers, he would have been running backwards and forwards to tell the news, instead of exploring, and he might have been able to write a volume upon the discovery of each lake and earn much more money thereby. They are no few months' explorations that form the contents of his books. His missionary travels embraces a period of sixteen years, his book on the Zambezi five years, and if the great traveler lives to come home, his third book, the grandest of all, must contain the records of eight or nine years. It is a principle with Livingston to do well what he undertakes to do, and in the consciousness that he is doing it, despite the yearning for his home, which is sometimes overpowering, he finds, to a certain extent, contentment, if not happiness. To men differently constituted, a long residence amongst the savages of Africa would be contemplated with horror. Yet Livingston's mind can find pleasure in food for philosophic studies. The wonders of primeval nature, the great forests and sublime mountains, the perennial streams and sources of the great lakes— the marvels of the earth, the splendors of the tropic sky by day and by night, all terrestrial and celestial phenomena are manna to a man of such self-abnegation and devoted philanthropic spirit. He can be charmed with the primitive simplicity of Ethiop's dusty children, with whom he has spent so many years of his life. He has a sturdy faith in their capabilities, sees virtue in them where others see nothing but savagery, and wherever he has gone among them he has sought to elevate a people that were apparently forgotten of God and Christian man. One night I took out my notebook, and prepared to take down from his own lips what he had to say about his travels, and unhesitatingly he related his experiences, of which the following is a summary. Dr. David Livingston left the island of Zanzibar in March, 1866. On the seventh of the following month he departed from Mikin de Bay for the interior, with an expedition consisting of twelve sepoys from Bombay, nine men from Johanna of the Comoro Islands, seven liberated slaves, and two Zambezi men, taking them as an experiment, six camels, three buffaloes, two mules, and three donkeys. He had thus thirty men with him, twelve of whom, via the sepoys, were to act as guards for the expedition. They were mostly armed with the infield rifles presented to the doctor by the Bombay government. The baggage of the expedition consisted of ten bales of cloth and two bags of beads, which were to serve as the currency by which they would be enabled to purchase the necessaries of life in the countries the doctor intended to visit. Beside the cumbrous monies, they carried several boxes of instruments, such as chronometers, air thermometers, sextant, and artificial horizon. Boxes containing clothes, medicines, and personal nes- necessaries. The expedition traveled up the left bank of the Rovuma River, a route as full of difficulties as any that w- could be chosen. For miles, Livingstone and his party had to cut their way with their axes through the dense and almost impenetrable jungles which lined the river's banks. The road was a mere footpath, leading in the most erratic fashion into and through the dense vegetation seeking the easiest outlet from it without any regard to the course it ran the bacazzis were able to proceed easily enough but the camels on account of their enormous height could not advance a step without the axes of the party clearing the way these tools of foresters were almost always required but the advance of the expedition was often retarded by the unwillingness of the sepoys and johanna men to work soon after the departure of the expedition from the coast The murmurings and complaints of these men began, and upon every occasion and at every opportunity they evinced a decided hostility to an advance. In order to prevent the progress of the doctor, and in hopes that it would compel him to return to the coast, these men so cruelly treated the animals that before long there was not one left alive. But as the scheme failed, they set about instigating the natives against the white men, and they accused most wantonly of strange practices as this plan was most likely to succeed and as it was dangerous to have such men with him the doctor arrived at the conclusion that it was best to discharge them and accordingly sent the sepoys back to the coast but not without having first furnished them with the means of substance on their journey to the coast these men were such a disreputable set that the natives spoke of them as the doctor's slaves one of their worst sins was the custom of giving their guns and ammunition to carry to the first woman or boy they met they impressed for that purpose by such threats or promises as they were totally unable to perform, and unwarranted in making. An hour's marching was sufficient to fatigue them, after which they lay down on the road to bewail their hard fate and concoct new schemes to frustrate their leaders' purposes. Toward night they generally made their appearance at the camping-ground with the looks of half-dead men, such men naturally made but a poor escort, for had the party been attacked by a wandering tribe of natives of any strength, the doctor could have made no defense, and no other alternative would have been left to him but to surrender and be ruined. The doctor and his little party arrived on the eighteenth of july eighteen sixty six at a village belonging to a chief of the Wahayu, situated eight days south march south of the Rovuma, and overlooking the watershed of Lake Nyassa. The territory lying between the Ravuma River and the Swahyu village was an uninhabited wilderness, during the transit of which Livingston and his expedition suffered considerably from hunger and desertion of men. Early in August 1866 the doctor came to the country of Mapanda, a chief who dwelt near the Lake Nyassa. On the road thither two of the liberated slaves deserted him. Here also Wikotani, a protégé of the doctor, insisted upon his discharge, alleging as an excuse, an excuse with th- which the doctor subsequently found to be untrue, that he had found his brother. He also stated that his family lived on the east side of the Nyasa lake. He further stated that Mopanda's favorite wife was his sister. Perceiving that Wikotani was unwilling to go with him further, the doctor took him to Mpanda, who now saw and heard of him for the first time, and having furnished the ungrateful boy with enough cloth and beads to keep him until his big brother should call for him, left him with the chief, after first assuring himself that he would receive honorable treatment from him. The doctor also gave Wikotani writing papers, as he could read and write, being accomplishments acquired at Bombay, where he had been put to school, so that, should he at any time feel disposed, he might write to his English friends or to himself. The doctor further enjoyed him not to join in any of the slave raids usually made by his countrymen the men of nyassa on their neighbors upon finding that his application for discharge was successful wikotani endeavored to induce chuma another protege of the doctor's and a companion or chum of wikotani to leave the doctor's service and proceed with him promising as a bribe a wife and plenty of pombe from his big brother chuma upon referring the matter to the doctor was advised not to go as he the doctor strongly suspected that wikotani wanted only to make him his slave chuma wisely withdrew from the, his tempter from mappandas the doctor proceeded to the heel of the nyassa to the village of a Bombiza chief who required medicine for a skin disease with his usual kindness he stayed at the chief's village to treat his malady while here a half-caste arab arrived from a western shore of the lake and reported that he had been plundered by a band of mazitu At a place which the doctor and Musa, chief of the Johanna men, were very well aware, was at least a hundred and fifty miles north-northwest of where they were then stopping. Musa, however, for his own reasons, which will appear presently, eagerly listened to the Arab's tale and gave full credence to it. Having well digested its horrible details, he came to the doctor to give him the full benefit of what he had heard with such willing ears the traveller patiently listened to the narrative which lost nothing of its portentous significance through musa's relation and then asked musa if he believed it yes answered musa readily he tell me true true i ask him good and he tell me true true The doctor, however, said he did not believe it, for the Mazitu could not have been satisfied with merely plundering a man. They would have murdered him, but suggested in order to ally the fears of his Muslim subordinate that they should both proceed to the chief with whom they were staying, who, being a sensible man, would be able to advise them as to the probability or improbability of the tale being correct. Together they proceeded to the Babisa chief, who, when he had heard the Arab's story, unhesitatingly denounced the Arab as a liar, and his story without the least foundation in fact given as a reason that if the Mazitu had been lately in that vicinity, he would have heard of it soon enough. But Musa broke out with a, "'No, no, doctor, no, 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 I no want to go to Mazutu. I no want Mazutu to kill me. I want to see my father, my mother, my child, and Johanna. I want no Mazutu.' These are Musa's words, Ipsissima verba, to which the doctor replied, I don't want the Mazuto to kill me either, but as you are afraid of them, I promise to go straight west until we get far past the beat of the mazutu. Musa was not satisfied, but kept moaning and sorrowing, saying, If we had two hundred guns with us, I would go, but our small party of men, they will attack by night and kill all. The doctor repeated his promise, But I will not go near them, I will go west as soon as he turned his face westward musa and the johanna men ran away in a body the doctor says in commenting upon musa's conduct that he felt strongly tempted to shoot musa in another ringleader but was nevertheless glad that he did not soil his hands with their vile blood a day or two afterwards another of his men simon price by name came to the doctor with the same tale about the mazutu, but compelled by the scant number of his people to repress all such tendencies to desertion and faint heartedness, the doctor silenced him at once, and sternly forbade him to utter the name of the mazutu any more. Had the natives not assisted him, he would have despaired of ever being able to penetrate the wild and unexplored interior which he was now about to tread. Fortunately, as the doctor says with unction, I was in a country now, after leaving the shores of Nyassa, which the foot of the slave trader had not trod it was a new and virgin land and of course as i have always found in such cases the natives were really good and hospitable and for every very small portions of cloth my baggage was conveyed from village to village by them in many other ways the traveller in his extremity was kindly treated by the yet unsophisticated and innocent natives on leaving this hospitable region in the early part of december eighteen sixty six the doctor entered a country where the mazutu had exercised their customary marauding propensities the land was swept clean of provisions and cattle and the people had immigrated to other countries beyond the bounds of these ferocious plunderers again the expedition was besieged by pinching hunger from which they suffered they had recourse to the wild fruits which some parts of the country furnished at intervals the condition of the hard-pressed band was made worse by the heartless desertion of some of its members who more than once departed with the doctor's personal kit change of clothes linen etc with more or less misfortunes constantly dogging his footsteps he traversed in safety the countries of bambiza Bombima, marungu baulungu and lunda in the country of Lunda lives the famous Kazimbe, who was first made known to Europeans by Dr. Lacerda, the Portuguese traveler. Kazimbe is a most intelligent prince. He is a tall stalwart man, who wears a peculiar kind of dress, made of crimson print in the form of a prodigious kilt. In this state dress, King Kazimbe received Dr. Livingstone, surrounded by his chiefs and bodyguards, a chief who had been deputed by the king and elders to discover all about the white man, then stood up before the assembly, and a loud voice gave the result of the inquiry he had instituted. He had heard that the white man had come to look for waters, for rivers and seas, though he could not understand what the white man could want with such things, he had no doubt that the object was good. Then Kazimbi asked what the doctor proposed doing, and where he thought of going. The doctor replied that he had thought of proceeding south, as he had heard of lakes and rivers being in that direction. Kazimbi asked, what can you want to go there for the water is close here there is plenty of large water in this neighbourhood before breaking up the assembly Kazembe gave orders to let the white man go where he would through his country undisturbed and unmolested he was the first englishman he had seen he said and he liked him shortly after his introduction to the king the queen entered the large house surrounded by a bodyguard of amazons with spears She was a fine, tall, handsome young woman, and evidently thought she was about to make an impression upon the rustic white man, for she had clothed herself with a most royal fashion, and was armed with a ponderous spear. But her appearance, so different from what the doctor had imagined, caused him to laugh, which entirely spoiled the effect intended, for the laugh of the doctor was so contagious that she herself was the first to imitate it, and the Amazons, courtier-like, followed suit. Most disconcerted by this, the queen ran back, followed by her obedient damsels, a retreat most undignified and unqueenlike compared with her majestic advent into the doctor's presence. But Livingston will have much to say about his reception at this court, and about this interesting king and queen, who can so well relate the scenes he witnessed, and which belong exclusively to him as himself. Soon after his arrival in the country of Lunda or Londa, and before he had entered the district ruled over by Cambysi, he had crossed a river called the Chambezi, which was quite an important stream. The similarity of the name with that large and noble river south, which will be forever connected with his name, misled Livingston at that time, and he, accordingly, did not pay to it the attention it deserved, believing that the Chambesi was but the headwaters of the Zambezi, and subsequently had no bearing or connection with the sources of the river of Egypt, of which he was in search. His fault was in relying too implicitly upon the correctness of Portuguese information. This error cost him many months of tedious labor and travel to rectify. End of chapter 12, part 2